Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is December the 14th, 2017, and this is episode 2,129 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Thursday, Thursday, Thursday. You know, nobody says that. It's just what it sounds. Anyway, it is time for a big show. This is a listener call show. So this, this show is, you know, half you and half me kind of working together to get through some stuff. Got a bunch of calls today. I did have a lot of backlog on the speak pipe, so if you were there, you might hear yourself on today's show. Every one of these is from the speak pipe. Uh, by the way, someone called in on the speak pipe, and they wanted to know about vehicles that would withstand an EMP. I'm not doing that as a segment. I'm just going to tell you, dude, there ain't going to be an EMP. You're not going to have an EMP. Stop worrying about an EMP. And every single thing that you do in your life that is designed around worrying about an EMP, is wasted time, money, and energy that could be spent in another way. There will be no EMP attack. I don't care how many prepper fiction books talk about it. It's not going to happen. But yes, you can protect a vehicle from an EMP if you really want to. And if you really want to, there's plenty of people out there in the interwebs that will play on your fear and tell you how to do it. While they'll be wrong about how likely it is that North Korea is going to nuke us with an EMP, they will be right about the protection against said same. Anyway, what are we going to talk about? We are going to talk about prepping garden beds for next season. We're going to talk about getting started as a new prepper without being overwhelmed and some places you can start with this show to get that done. We got ideas for kids' permaculture projects over the winter. We got setting up an indoor aquaponics build for about 250-ish dollars. We have dealing with road rage and one person's story of how they dealt with it properly. And I will admit something when we talk about that, I guess. Uh, pretty much the same thing this guy admits, honestly. Uh, thoughts on local market podcasts. So not a podcast like TSP that's designed to go around the world, but just around your neighborhood or maybe your city or town or county or something like that. I actually don't think that's a bad idea at all. And thoughts on how we should value our time. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we get to your calls, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. And the two sponsors of the day are great ones like they are, right? We have Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason first today. His website is directive21.com. If you want to make sure you're drinking the best quality water you can drink, get yourself a Berkey. That's all you got to do. Go get a Berkey. It looks great. It, it, it doesn't really have any moving parts. It can't really break. It's a little pricey out of the gate, but once you have it, replacing the filters is done so infrequently that... It's about the cheapest way to produce top quality water you can do in the world. Uh, I believe in Berkey so much that even though Jeff's a sponsor, I probably could have got him to give me one when I first met him and we started our dialogue. I bought one from him. I've, I've always said if I'm going to if I'm going to ask you to spend your money on something, I'm going to be willing to spend my money on it. In this case, I was happy to do so. I liked it so much. I bought one for my son and my daughter-in-law when they got their first house or their first apartment together uh, as kind of a housewarming gift, and they use it all the time too. I don't know anybody that ever bought one. It's like, damn, I wish I wouldn't have done this. I wish I would have bought something else. You know, it is one of the best things that you can do to invest in your health. 
and your wellness is to make sure you're drinking good quality water. And remember this, guys, when they say, we have issued a boil water advisory because we've figured out something's wrong with the water supply, that means you already drank it multiple times before they figured it out. That's how that works. Uh, next up today is the original Survival Podcast sponsor. That would be who? Safe Castle Royal. Vic Vontala's group there, man. These guys, they stepped up and sponsored this show at the very beginning. They tried to sponsor it before I would let them. When we started doing this, you know, and I had like about 500 people listening, Vic was like, I want to do something. I'm like, hold on, man. Hold on. I, I will not take a sponsor's money until I think I can do the job for them. And, uh, you know, about 18 months into it is when we launched the member support brigade and other, the sponsorship program and everything. We actually started to monetize the show. And, man, Vic was ready to go when we did that. And uh, we built a lot of, the, of everything around how we worked with them as our first sponsor. They have everything for your prepping needs. And they have a lifetime discount member. They have a discount membership program. It's no longer a lifetime. It's, it's $29 a year. But you can get a lifetime one for free. All you got to do is check out the benefits section of your MSB. That's how big a supporter they are. And let me tell you something. If you want a lifetime membership to Safe Castle, the only way is to be an MSB member. You can't even buy one any other way. There is no other source of lifetime Safe Castle discount memberships anymore except MSB. Great supporter and everything you need for your preps. Check them out where? SafeCastle.com. Next up, let's take a look at a year in history. We are up to the year 81 as we journey through history with uh, David Verne and Southpaw Ben. Today I have a segment from David, and it's the dark side of the Flavians. In September, Titus falls ill while traveling to the Roman countryside and ends up dying from an infection after only two years as emperor. He's 41 years old and was remembered for continuing his father's reasonable policies. His younger brother, Domitian, who had been ignored by Vespian, suddenly found himself as the only legal heir. The day after Titus died, Domitian was hailed as emperor by the Senate, who was surprised when Domitian didn't go into mourning and hurried to the Praetorian camp to gain their support. He would surprise them even more when he upended years of political tradition. During his time as Vespian's representative to the Senate, Domitian had realized how ineffective they were, and when he saw the traditional policy of the emperors asking the Senate to give their approval before doing something as inefficient, he wanted to model his administration on Augustus. But instead of maintaining the charade of democracy, as Augustus had done, he very loudly and publicly consented power in the imperial bureaucracy, stripping any remaining power from the Senate. The first example of this was when he deified Titus himself, instead of asking the Senate for permission, as Titus had done when he deified Vespian. Domitian then embarked on a massive round of temple building, hoping to appease the gods and connect his administration with them. While the elites began to hate the tyrant Domitian was becoming, the common people loved him. He wasn't a tyrant like Nero, who indulged in hedonism. Instead, he focused on ruthlessly weeding out corruption and simplifying the tax code. He also announced a one-third pay raise for the army and rebased the denarius, increasing the silver content from 90 to 98%. He saw the value of the currency as a matter of personal honor and felt that it reflected badly on him if the currency was debased. 
My take by David Verne. Domitian was definitely a break from what the Senate had been used to. He wasn't a populist like Caesar, but he didn't care for the nobility. He didn't hate the nobility, but he saw them as being in the way of effective administration. Notably, he gave positions based on merit, and this gave many men of lower social class an opportunity they would have never gotten under another emperor. This created an imperial court of highly loyal, effective men. Domitian was turning out to be an innovative emperor, but his disregard for the elites will come back to haunt him in the end. After his death, the Senate damned his memory, and historians of the time, who were also senators, condemned him as a ruthless tyrant and a black mark on the Flavian family. There's times when I, as I read and learn more about Roman history, I wonder if the emperors with the worst reputations might have actually been the best emperors. Hard to believe that about Nero. Really hard. But I, I, I wonder. Some of the things that you know I, I, I look at, I, I really wonder. And all I can think of is what we call today the deep state. So this guy was out there lowering taxes for everybody, giving common people opportunities they wouldn't have otherwise have, ruthlessly weeding out corruption, ignoring the, the elites, and, gee, the people that you know ended up back in charge with the Senate who were pushed out by him during his reign, which I think is about 10 years, if I remember right, say he sucked when they get rid of him. After, and they, I do know his, he, he does not die of natural causes. I'll put it to you that way. Yeah, he, he's a black mark on, on the Empire of Rome. Now, look, I, I think it's actually a terrible thing for one person to have complete power over other people. But I think it's a pretty terrible thing for 535 people to have almost complete power over other people. I also wonder if um, the Roman Empire... Had the Roman Empire had something similar to an impeachment proceeding, if there would have been a whole lot less dead people in Rome, I just wonder. You don't know. I mean, it was a different time. We're starting impeachment uh, proceedings against you, Emperor. Off with their heads or something. It may, it may not have really worked that way, but uh, it, it, it's interesting. I think that having a medium of removal, other than stabbing somebody in the face, is probably a good way to keep the peace. You know, I'm just saying. Anyway, with that, um, before we get into your calls, I want to remind you guys that you can help support this show really, really, really easy. And the way you can help support us is simply by becoming a member of our member support brigade. You'll get discounts like the ones I talked about. You can learn all about it just by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on members. With that, let's go ahead and get into your calls. Um, I, I do want to remind you guys real quick as we start doing this today how to, how to do a call. And that is, you call from a quiet area. Uh, if you are on your cell phone, make sure you don't have any, uh, you know, you don't have like one bar. Make sure you have a couple bars. If you're using the speak pipe, make sure you have a good connection on the internet. Uh, and then make your point and ask your question. Make your point or ask your question in one sentence. And then give me the details. There's going to be a little girl on here in just a bit. She's not the first one. She's the third caller of the day. If you want to know how to make a textbook call and get your call on the air, do what this gal did when you hear her call. Number to call, 866-65-THINK, 866-65-T-H-I-N-K. Or again, you can go to the website and scroll down, look for the speak pipe button, and get to us through the magic of the interwebs. First call is on garden bed prepping for next season. Hi, Jack. This is Joe from Lindenhurst, New York. My question is, 
how do I prepare for next year's growth? A little background. I've grown zucchini. I've grown eggplants. I've grown tomatoes. Uh, I've grown whatever fall vegetables I was going to grow in my beds. And now I'm left over with a bunch of dead leftover material. So do I pull it out of the roots? Do I chop it and drop it? Uh, what's the best way to prepare for next year's growth? Great job on the podcast. Love listening to you every day. MSB member. So you have a cold, wet winter coming. And what happens to vegetation and cold and wetness? It breaks down and goes back to the earth where it belongs. And so to me, rather than taking all kinds of garden debris and, and, and building a compost pile and turning it and turning it and turning it, um, I, I, I prefer to leave pretty much everything where it is. Now, what you need is ground contact. So what I will usually do in, in a situation like you're describing is, you know, a machete or something and, and cut all of the plants off at the ground level. And most of your roots probably will break down over the winter. If they don't, then you can remove whatever's left in the spring when you're ready to plant. Cut everything down, lay it flat on the ground, and throw some mulch over top of it and protect your ground through the winter. Um, a good mulch for this could be wood chips, or if you prefer, you could use straw uh, or hay. Uh, I would prefer straw over hay. You, you will get a little bit of, you know, seed left in some straw and stuff like that. But overall, I, I definitely prefer straw uh, to hay because hay can get kind of matted down and anaerobic and nasty. And that's the last thing that we want. So wood chips or straw. And this would be a good time also to decide, do you want to put any kind of cover crop in? Now, it's pretty late in the year in, in, in New York, and it's pretty cold there. And there's not a lot of great things that are going to germinate well for you right now. Um, but one of the things that you might consider using as a cover crop that will probably start coming up you know, when it's ready uh, would be something like vetch. And that will give you some nitrogen fixation and things like that. Uh, and it goes away pretty easily when you when you turn it over in the spring. I wouldn't do something like ryegrass. Ryegrass will damn sure grow, but you know it will uh, it will have a hell of a root mass uh, that if you're wanting to do annual con uh, annual garden production, you're not going to want to deal with it. So vetch would probably be the best bet. You know some of the things like rye, wheat, triticale. Um, they make good cover crops, but in a garden bed, they again, they get huge root masses. Cast white oat will handle the winter, but uh, you don't need a cover crop here. If I was going to do a cover crop, I probably would have done it earlier in the year. So what I would suggest, again, is laying everything down there and mulch it. And I'll give you a tip for, you can do this year-round, but especially in winter when you got the whole bed mulched. A lot of people seem to want to make compost and I, I'm fine with that but like if you just take all your your waste that will compost easily and pull your mulch up and lay it right on the on the dirt and put it back over it'll disappear like that you know soil organisms lead it etc and you'll be putting that stuff right in there I mean it's amazing you throw a banana peel on the surface of the ground and it'll be there for days and weeks you put it on soil uh, covered by mulch and it's a lot of times it'll be gone in a day two days maybe three Uh, earthworms, etc., will eat it. Uh, another thing that you really might want to do right now is feed those soil organisms, especially as it's going to be cold and they're going to wake up in the spring and having some nourishment there might help. So uh, a little bit of horticultural molasses is, is a great addition right now before you put down uh, your, your, uh, your mulch. 
So that which could be dry is probably best to do that with, but you could use the wet kind and you make a drench and, and put it down. Um, that, that's, that's how I would do it. And I like, again, I like to leave things in the soil, leave the roots in the soil. A lot of times when, let's say I have a, let's say I'm doing pepper plants in, in a garden bed. And let's say in the spring when I go to plant that and I, I go to, to put my new plant in, that root ball is still there and it's kind of in the way. Even then, I usually won't take it out. I'm not one of these people that has to have my pepper plant be in the exact square inch that, that, that it was last year. I'll just go over about three or four inches from where it was planted last year, dig a hole and put it in there and leave those roots in the ground to feed those worms and microorganisms. The less we mess around with the soil, the more it'll stay what it's supposed to be, the easier it'll be to maintain. The higher we keep the fertility, the less weeds we'll have. That's my thoughts. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. I'm uh, based in Michigan. My name is Brian. I just fell upon your podcasts probably within the last week, and I'm addicted to them. I'm kind of new to prepping. I've got a few things stored up, uh, some water, ways to get fresh water, um, some food. I've got a garden about 30 feet by 80 feet. I've got a few trees planted and things like that. But I'm wondering, is there an area on your website that I should start? Um, when you're prepping, it's easy to get overwhelmed. And I've seen a lot of people on your podcast discuss how you don't want to do too much too fast. But your podcast alone in, in your website has just so much information on it. I'm wondering if you can give me some advice on where I should actually start with prepping and reading and uh, things like that. Any advice would be appreciated. Thanks. Well, I mean, it honestly sounds like you're further along than you than you probably think you are, and you're you're doing better than most. So that's that's a good start. Uh, I'm going to give you three episodes. I do have linked in the show notes of, of fairly recent shows that I think are perfect for you. And I think when you, as soon as you, you hear the name of the first two, you're going to be like, oh, that's exactly what I'm looking for. Um, episodes 1056 and 1057, they're called Zero to Prepared, Fast, Simple, and Low Cost, Part 1, and Zero to Prepared, Fast, Simple, and Low Cost, Part 2. Almost exactly what you're asking for. I did those episodes, I guess, Gee, we're going back a couple of years because people come to me with that all the time. And I like having something that's concrete and lasting. And we should probably go back and do shows like that every once in a while, or at least I should freaking mention them. Uh, I also have a, a, a space on the website. If you go to about, you'll see uh, articles or shows for shows for new listeners. And uh, these should probably be added to that list. I've done a lot of shows since I made that list, and, and these two definitely should be on it. Well, we talk about in that the, those those shows is how to just start looking at the most likely things that are going to fail and go ahead and get yourself, you know, basically prepared for all of those things that are likely to happen and to do so over time uh, in a very methodical, logical way. And, you know, in a few months you come a long way and in a year you're, you're really, really prepared. And when you get to the point where like, well, I'm already prepared for that, you just skip ahead to the next one. Um, this is really probably the best two shows I've ever done on that subject. The other one is more of a philosophical one. And I, if you've listened for a while, you might know this, but I have 12 planks of modern survivalism or 12 tenets. And everything that I teach comes off of those 12 spokes like a wheel. And if we, if we follow that philosophy, it doesn't really matter exactly how I would address a certain situation 
that philosophy will lead you to your own solution. In fact, the, the final tenet is basically what you do matters, and you need to go ahead, you need to write your own plan. Because if I write the plan for you, you're going to do all the things except the ones that you don't want to do, and eventually you fall out and you won't complete the plan. And so I've done a lot of episodes where I've gone through that 12 planks. The most recent one was episode 1812, and it was called The 12 Planks of Modern Survivalism Eight Years Later, because it was eight years since I had penned the original tenants or planks. And I think between those three shows, it'll get you in the right mindset and it'll give you the action items that you need. In fact, I would say this. I would, if I were you, even though the Zero to Prepared one sounds like exactly what the doctor ordered, I would listen to show 1812 first to get the philosophy into yourself so that then when you're hearing the mechanics, it merges with the philosophy. You might find that it'll work better for you that way. If there's any shows that people think, you know, I would recommend this for a newer person, you know, comment in the show notes. And I think, again, the big thing, though, is people are right when they tell you not to get overwhelmed. The reason we cover so much is because we do five shows a day and half for over nine years. And we can't just keep saying the same thing over and over again or we'll get boring. And we talk about everything from things to do to how to think and how to develop your own mindset, uh, how to deal with society and how to deal with you know, other people, how to build a business, all this stuff. But the reason I do that level of variety is so people get everything. And then I, I kind of look at the way you have to build your own life, uh, like kind of like a Jeet Kune Do, right? Bruce Lee's approach to martial arts. You take what is most valuable and leave the rest behind. But I, I hope that since we do this more you know, information instead of a Kung Fu technique, that the knowledge of these other things helps you even when you're not doing them directly. Or at some point, when you get to a place where you need that, maybe you don't remember everything you listened to in an episode five years ago. I mean, of course you don't. I don't. But you are aware of the solution, or you're aware of a technique, or you're aware of a possibility. And then you can go back and, 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 and find out what you need to implement that. So you might get to a point, like we're going to have an aquaponics question today, you might like, I don't want to do aquaponics, but at some point you might realize, you know, I really should do aquaponics. And because you're aware of many different facets, rather than just the concept of a blue barrel that you saw on YouTube, and many different ways and integrations of it, you might realize it's a solution for you when otherwise you would not have. It, it, it goes back to the concept of if you give one person a hammer... They may not be able to do anything with it. Another person may bash somebody's brains in with it. Another person may be able to knock a nail around or something. But you give some people a hammer, and it's all they need to get started with, and they'll build you a house. And the more you have knowledge of what the hammer can do, you know, it's kind of the converse when people say, you know, if you only have a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. But if you, if, if you watch Alone in the Wilderness, he went off in the woods, and the first thing he did was build himself a hammer. Then he made all the tools for all of his other tools. So he made all the handles for all the tools that he brought the steel parts in with. And he used that to build a house in the middle of nowhere. I mean, that's the kind of way things have to be. When you know the full capabilities of a concept, even if you don't know exactly how to implement them, 
they're there like a jackknife or a, a Swiss Army knife to be pulled out when you're when you're ready for it. So don't let the sheer volume overwhelm you, but definitely check out episodes 18, 12, 1056, and 1057, all linked in today's show notes. Thanks for the call, and thanks for joining us and sticking around, because uh, I do think, you know, I think Mike and Sue said yesterday, like, you got to give it a week. you got to give it a week. If you're a new listener and you're like, I don't know, give it a week, because... In that week, you're going to find how the, how the show works and why it matters and how it impacts lives. And all of a sudden, stuff that you didn't think you'd be interested in, you're going to get really interested in it. Or even if it's something you don't want to do, you're going to learn from it. And that's that's what this, this show is all about is teaching. Uh, if, we, if we are aware of all of the possibilities, then we're always prepared. That's it's, Awareness is like one of the greatest things to have in your survival kit, awareness. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Do you have some suggestions for permaculture projects for kids over Christmas break? Details. I have four sisters, age 5 through 10. We live in Indiana. My parents are market gardeners. We have chicken, pigs, and two acres of vegetables. We farm all year long. One idea I had was starting quail, but they need to be outside, and it may be too cold. Thanks for helping me, Callie in Indiana. Well, Callie, first I'd like to congratulate you on setting a perfect example for all the other grown adults that call in all the time about how to make a call. Because you can't do it better than that. That was perfect. So thank you for demonstrating perfection on making a call into the show. Next up, let's talk about your quail for a minute. Um, you can't have quail like that outside in a way where they can't get out of the wind, that's for sure. Well, they do need some kind of protection, but they can be outside in the cold uh, as long, again, as they can get out of the wind and you have like a wind block, a three-sided structure with maybe an open front would be one way. As long as that open front, uh, you know, the best situation would be to allow sun to get in when the sun's low in the winter uh, and maybe something your dad could help you with. But if you have a... Uh, a wind uh, that comes hard from from the south, you know, that could be a problem. So I guess you got to kind of do a little bit of a site survey to determine if that would work for you. Um, as far as I know, you might be thinking, well, in the winter baby quail especially might have a hard time in the cold. Well, they're going to have to be in a brooder inside anyway. They, they might live outside eventually, but your baby quail are going to have to be in some sort of a heated brooder. It doesn't necessarily have to be in the house, but it's going to need quite a bit of protection, and it's pretty easy for you know even something like a rat to eat them when they're little like that. So unless your brooder is completely contained, you know, in the house is probably the best place for them during that period of time. But that's something you could talk to your parents about and see if maybe setting up a quail system uh, is a good way to go. You could also consider setting up some sort of an aviary for your quail like I did. And I'm sure you can find my videos on YouTube where we have the quail aviary. And if you do that, as long as they're given shelters and boxes, I can tell you they'll go in there and use them. However, I probably wouldn't put quail into it in um, the the winter. Uh, I would probably wait, but you could start designing and building it if that's what you wanted to do. What we found with quail is they're not real smart about living outside because they've lived in cages for thousands of years, uh, but they do adapt readily. But when you first put young ones into an aviary, if it gets really cold or rainy, they'll all pile into a corner, and some of them will end up crushing the other ones. I guess, of course, it also depends on how many you have. But we lost an awful lot like that the first time we put them into the aviary when they were about three weeks old. 
By the time they're about five or six weeks old, they're about as tough as a chicken when it comes to dealing with the cold as long as they can get sheltered. Um, so those are some things to think about that. But there's a lot of things that you can do. You know, I just did a show uh, about a week ago on planning for spring, and that's a really great thing to do during the winter is planning, figuring out the things that you want to do that maybe are difficult to do in winter and getting the design put together, you know, putting it down on paper, making a list of materials and things like that. A really great thing to be doing right now, you know, your parents are market gardeners, so you, your parents probably know more about growing vegetables than I do. Uh, but, you know, they might be market gardening, but maybe you want to grow some stuff that's a little bit unique, and maybe maybe if you test it, then they can see if whether or not it might work for expanding their, their line with their customers. So you might want to get over to Baker Creek Seeds, if, you, if your parents already haven't done this, and get a copy of their catalog, because they have some of the most unique, beautiful, awesome vegetables you will ever see. That'd be another thing you could do. Now, you told me that you have chickens. I'm sure your parents want as much compost as they can get. So you might take a look at Jeff Lawton's videos on uh, building a chicken tractor on steroids. And you can probably find that online, and parents can probably help you if you have any trouble with it. Uh, but you might be able to come up with a way to really do a good job of processing all that waste if they're not already. So that's the thing. I don't know what they're already doing. It sounds to me like they might be doing a lot of really cool stuff. So the question is, what do you want to do? What do you want to, to kind of give a, a shot to next? It sounds like quail something that you're looking at. So yeah, that would be a great one. I actually think you should, what you should do is instead of saying, well, it's going to be cold outside, is you should start thinking about, well, how can we make quail work? And I'll tell you what I like about quail. They lay a lot of little eggs, and those eggs are pretty marketable, especially in a, a place where your parents are already has a, have a customer base, and they're actually very profitable. So I like that. They're also good to eat, especially if you let them, you know, put them in the refrigerator, let them hang out for about three or four weeks before you do this, and hard boil them, and then they peel a lot easier. And man, they make good pickled eggs, especially if you pickle them with jalapenos. But if you want to put meat, you know, on the table, quail are a fantastically delicious little animal to eat. And one of the really cool things about quail is when you do have to process them, it takes about 30 seconds to a minute and a half, depending on how good you are at it, to get them ready to, to, to go into the oven or into the stove or on the grill. So I think you really should continue looking at that. You have a lot of waste material there. I don't know if you've ever thought about looking at learning about black soldier flies. But then you would be producing a fantastic protein supplement for your chickens. Uh, we're going to have a question in just a minute on aquaponics, specifically indoors. I think that everybody, every single person that wants to, to do permaculture in their life should learn about aquaponics and should build a small-scale, at least, aquaponics system not just for the food that it can produce, because it is one of the best ways in the world that I know of to root cuttings of plants and make more plants. And I personally think when you like to grow lots of stuff, when you're able to propagate plants, I think it's like printing money. If you think about a plant that maybe costs even just five bucks, but you need ten of them, that's fifty dollars. That's some money right there. It, it, and you know, we want to produce food and all, but I'm sure we're buying some of our food as well. Well, if we have $50 we don't spend on plants and we go out and buy some food that we can't produce or is not right for us to produce, that's just like producing food. 
because we've saved money we would have already all otherwise spent. Now that's free and available. So I'd really start looking into aquaponics, and there's a lot of different ways to do it. We can do it very inexpensively. We can do it very high-end. There's tons of different opportunities, and that brings yet another dimension into things. So I think really what you got to do, Cal, is you got to sit down and think about what you want to do next And then don't let the fact that it's winter, don't let the fact that it's a kid, you're a kid, or don't let the fact that you have a limited budget or whatever it is, don't let any of that get in the way of it. Figure out what you want to do, and then you have the real challenge, figuring out how to do it with the limitations you have. But you definitely can set up a quail system if that's what you want to do. I promise you, you can do it. With that, let's go ahead and take another call. And thank you for calling, and again, thank you for giving all these grown adults an example of how to make a perfect call. Hello, Jack. This is Jalal from Denver. I have a build challenge for you, but this one is not a rifle. It's a department-based aquaponics system. Details. Wife and I just moved to Denver from Chicago this summer, and while we like living here, the higher cost of food at the store is a bit ridiculous. So, since we can't argue with the benefits of an aquaponics system, especially for the liberty-minded, Figured why not put one in the living room. I'm curious to know your take on a build for a system that is about four feet wide, give or take, comes off the wall about a foot, and has a grow bed that's about three and a half feet tall for easy access to the plants. Should probably accommodate a grow light since the system will not be in direct view of a window. My materials budget is around $250, but there might be some flex room in there for making it look pretty for the missus so it doesn't look like a plumbing project. Uh, that's about all the details that I have on the uh, build. If you've got any questions, you can hit me an email. Learned a great deal from the show and the TSP community. Greatly appreciate it and keep up the good work. Okay, the way I'm going to lay this out, you probably are going to spend a little bit more than 200 bucks, especially when we start thinking about a pump and we start thinking about all the little fittings and doodads and wigamajigs to, to make bell siphons. It's all PVC. It's all pretty inexpensive, but uh, it, it all does add up in some sort of container and then media. Uh, you're probably going to use lava rock, uh, or you know you could use those pebbles, but then you're really going to spend more money. Um, the clay pebbles, they're great though, and I would try to find if you want to use the clay pebbles, I would try to find like a local hydroponics store. And I think you said Colorado, so it probably ain't real hard to find yourself some uh, local hydroponics supplies. Um, and what I would advise the people that want to do like the the clay pebbles to keep costs down, fill your your media bed about halfway with lava rock, which is cheap, and then top it, the other half of it, with pebbles because you don't need to get that deep down in there to plant your plants and all your other stuff anyway. But I would build this on a 55-gallon aquarium. And the reason I would do that is that you want something about four foot long and a foot off the wall. It's a little less than four foot long, and it's about 11 inches off the wall. It's, it's, it's perfect for that. I have an aquarium stand that I recommend. I have one I'm looking at it right now. I have a tank on the bottom and the top, and it's it's uh, a double aquarium stand for uh, 55 gallon tanks. They're 90 bucks, man. That's that's gonna ding you a bit on your overall budget. It's half there in a stand. You don't have to use this stand. You could probably build something that would do things quite similarly. 
And if you did, you might end up lifting the tank a bit higher off the ground because uh, you still have plenty of overhead to keep your distance the way you want. But it's actually pretty perfect for the way I'm going to describe building this. Um, what you do is you put that 55-gallon aquarium down there on the bottom, and then the top where normally a tank would go. I mean, it's just the first time when I got this and I set it up, I was like, if I didn't want two tanks, I'd probably get this thing anyway. And I would do exactly that, do an indoor aquaponic system with it. If The reason I'm recommending this is if all of a sudden one day, for some reason at all, we decided we wanted an aquaponic system in the house, this is exactly what I would do. Now, your, your tank, I would avoid getting any of the starter kits to come with tank pumps and, and all that stuff because the reality is it's all useless to you if you want to do straight aquaponics. You don't need a hood. You don't need a cover. In fact, it would be detrimental to the overall system. So you get your tank and you put it on the bottom and then you take your grow beds and you put them on the top. And probably like two of the concrete mixing trays would be just about right for this. And that's a lot more bed than I think people really realize that it is. So we have our ebb and flow bed set up now, or we could have one as a constant flow and one as an ebb and flow. It's just how we set it up, and that's really easy to do. And we have our water being pumped up and dropping back straight back down in our tank. It's as simple as aquaponics can possibly get. We'll, we'll need some grow lights, of course, as you said, and we can do that by coming straight up off the stand, Or we could go out and we could get a couple stand lights. I'm just talking about regular, everyday lamps. The ones that are tall and skinny and they have kind of a bendable arm. Well, a couple of those with screw-in LED grow lights pointed down at it and you've got light. You're, you're going to be able to get enough light and that would make it really easy to do. And it'll look cool and it would make it really easy to automate everything and put them on timers and all that. Um, or you could build something up and put... Uh, something like the 45-watt King Bose up on that top of that stand, and maybe one over each grow bed would do what you want to do there. And what I would do is I would set it up so that your ebb and flows are to the, like, is, without making a mess, right, and splashing over, whatever, out to the outside of the tank. So you got two grow beds coming down, two ebb and flows, so your water's dropping down and hitting that water on the sides of the tank. It leaves the middle wide open. And then I'd go get some foam board insulation or anything else that will do what I'm about to explain would work. An old you know, floating mat for a pool that people lay on or something can do this. And get yourself a 2 and 7 eighths inch hole saw. Cut some holes in it and drop in 3 inch net cups. Now you've got a raft. Take another one of those 45 watt king bows. Attach it right to the center of the fish tank, right up in the middle of the fish tank, and put your raft right under there, and now you can grow your lettuces and things like that, and your water disturbance is to the sides of it. You'll want to do something to keep it from drifting, obviously you want to keep it center, but you don't want to hold it down too tight, because you want to be able to you know, move up and down, because you're going to have the water in your fish tank, the level is going to change, it's going to go up and down as the ebb and flow beds work. The ebb and flow beds will be all of the filtration that you need, that's why you can just Forget about your uh, your your starter tanks with because I bought the 55 gallon starter kit because it's it's everything you need and you're ready to go uh, and it's pretty affordable if you want fish as a hobby but for ebb and flow all you need is a raw tank so you're you're somewhere in the 250 bucks with all of that maybe a little higher with those like three grow lights that's going to cost you uh, 
uh, what are they, like 28 bucks now, so say 30, so 90 bucks in lights. And you really can't, I'm telling you, I wouldn't go much lower end than those, uh, the 45-watt King Bus, because we know they work. A little bit of a caution. Those lights are not good to point at your eyes. So if you're going to have ones that are higher up, they need to be angled back. Uh, those are, you know, full-spectrum lights. It's like, it, it's kind of sort of like looking at the sun. It does the same kind of damage to your eyeballs. So you need to think about how you, you, you set those up. Uh, but again, if you, if you wanted to go a little less on the lights, they make screw-in ones. Kingbo makes them as well. I'll put links to all the different lights that I'm talking about today in the show notes. And you could use stand lamps. Here's some ways to knock the cost down. Number one, check out Craigslist until you find a 55-gallon uh, fish tank. That would be one. Another thing is, if you don't need it this second, start watching Petco. Not Pet Smart, Petco. About three or four times a year, they do a thing called a dollar a gallon sale. Any fish tank is a dollar a gallon up to like 75 gallons. So you could even do it with a 75 gallon tank if you want to build your own stand. And I do think they make this same stand for 75 gallon tanks. And if it'll hold a 55 gallon tank full of water, it'll definitely hold your grow beds. You, no worries there whatsoever. And it's completely safe, and it's been in my house for almost a year now, and I've, I've not had any problems with this tank, even though it doesn't look like maybe it's as strong as it, as it is. Um, so you could watch for that, and that would be another way to keep your, your cost down. But the reason I'm suggesting a fish tank is you want it to look, you said you want it to look good for mama, right? So it looks great, and you can, you know, you can put, tilapia in there if you want to uh and you know you in this type of system any fish yield you get is really a byproduct uh but you could put just tropical fish in there you know put some angel fish in there or something like that you don't you, you know so you could have it be more of an ornamental type system goldfish is actually perfect though then you don't have to worry about heating the water at all. Room temperature is way fine. I got goldfish floating around out there in 50 degree water right now. They don't even care. They're not real active when it's that cold, but they certainly don't care if their water gets down to 70 degrees. Goldfish can actually be really cool. And what I would do, again, this time, Pets Mart, not Pet Co. Pet Smart sells um, basically feeder goldfish. And I think the bigger ones are like 29 cents or 14 cents or something like that. Go in there and say, I mean, I want 20, 25 at least in a system like this to produce enough waste. And just get me anything that's not solid orange. Get me some pattern. Now you got your goldfish swimming around down there. You got your raft bed down there with them growing your lettuce. You can grow whatever it is that you want up in your ebb and flow beds. And it's all self-contained. You need one little pump. Any pond pump, you know, that's going to run, I would say at least uh, 600 gallons an hour is going to be fine and has enough lift to go up a couple feet. Uh, but I'll, I'll pick a pump for you that I would recommend. I'll put that in the show notes. But again, you're probably going over 250 bucks. I can do it cheaper, but it will never look as good as this. You know, it really isn't going to look as good. I mean, you could do some. I mean, you could do some things to to make it look good, cheap. If you can find the thing is in Colorado, I haven't noticed a lot of you know wooden fencing, uh, like the standard six foot dog eared fencing. But old fence wood basically could hide a lot of and look cool. My wife's been making some uh, 
basically pictures lately from old fence wood nailed together, and it's amazing when you clean that stuff up and just hit it with some stain how awesome it looks. So you could make a tank of anything. You could take a, you know, here you want to, but see, you're still, you're still in some money to do this right. So another example would be a 100-gallon Rubbermaid stock tank. What's well, 80 bucks? You can get a 55-gallon tank for less than 80 bucks, and now you got to hide that it's this big, ugly Rubbermaid tank, but they sure work good. I mean, if you want to know quick and easy aquaponics, you get a 100-gallon Rubbermaid stock tank, you get two 50-gallon Rubbermaid stock tanks and some two-befores, and your two stock tanks, the two smaller stock tanks are your and flow beds, and the lower one is your fish tank. You throw a pump down in there, put it inside a bucket with some holes in it with a little bit of the pipe coming through so it doesn't suck your fish in, and just start running ebb and flow straight. I mean, it's as simple as it gets. And if you wanted that to be bigger, you could add stands later and put as many, but that's not what you want to do indoors, right? You want it to look good. So I'm going to say the fish tank method. And again, I'll, I have a link already to the uh, tank stand, and I'll find a pump that's appropriately sized for a system like this for you, and I'll put that in there for you, and, and everything else is just piecing it together at that point. And I'll have a link to both the 45-watt King Bows and the kind I'm talking about, and it's not necessarily buy this, because I haven't bought any of these, but the style I'm talking about, you can do with stand lamps. You want to keep the price, let's say you want to do the, the stand lamps, I mean, go buy, you know, Habitat for Humanity, uh, Goodwill, places like that, until you find a couple decent-looking lamps. I mean, you're talking about steel and a little sconce on them. You could get different sconces if you don't like the way they look. You probably wouldn't even use a sconce with them because that, that grow lamp's gonna, that grow light's gonna be too big for it. So all you got is a piece of steel, a steel base and a, and an arm. So if you don't like the way they look, a can of spray paint takes care of that. So you can probably find some cheap stand lamps like that and put one over each. Um, but the 45 watts with building some sort of overhead canopy will work better. Now let's talk about what you can grow. The smart thing to grow in a system like that is leafy greens, quick turnaround crops, herbs, lettuces, and stuff like that. You can do some lettuces and stuff down in your raft bed, but you can also do them up there. Uh, taking garlic cloves. So you, have, you buy a head of garlic, pull it apart, use all the big ones for yourself for eating. And all those little bitty ones that are a pain in the butt to, to clean anyway, just stick those in your oven flow beds. In a week, they'll be, they'll be six, seven inch tall and use them like chives. Never let them get too big. They start to fall over, what have you. You're not going to produce garlic. You're going to produce garlic greens, basically, like scapes. Uh, that's, that's a thing. When you, when you get a, a thing of celery, instead of cutting it, like you, you become accustomed to, where you just cut the whole base off of it, pull all of your outer pieces until you're down to the, the small bit of celery heart and leave the base broad and just take that and stick that in your oven flow bed. Within a week, it'll start to grow and it'll start to get dark green. I've got one out. I put a video out today I'll talk about toward the end of the show today. Um, I've got a, a bunch of celery that I stuck the base in just like that in one of my oven flow beds in my greenhouse. It's been there for over a year. And whenever I want celery, I just go out and cut some off of it. Now, it's not the same as celery you get in a store because that's blanched. That's how they make it, you know, light colors, dark green, but huge on flavor. Um, but you're probably not going to be growing a bunch of peppers and tomatoes. You probably could get a pepper plant to grow, and you probably could get, if you were going to do a tomato, I would do like a patio tomato, like a husky cherry red, like, you know, a bush-sized tomato. 
because you just don't have the space for a plant like that. Um, but go with easy-to-grow, fast-growing things. You could really easily, if you take a look at your, your dimensions and space there, you probably can find somewhere to fit in a small tray to do microgreens as part of this and basically have your water just pass through a lower tray and water from the bottom or grow microgreen black hole sunflower would be great. But, but if you think you're going to be growing a whole bunch of tomatoes or something like that, that's not going to happen. You're talking about salad greens in a system like this. But I, I want to see you do it. I'll, I've talked about this method a bunch of times, and no one's done one yet. It almost makes me want to do it, man. Basil, you know, you have your raft bed. You go to the store, you buy fresh basil, take some cuttings off it, poke a hole in your raft bed in between the, the net cups, stick basil in there. It'll root, throw it in your ebb and flow bed. It'll grow. As it starts to get older, pull some cuttings off it, reroot them, yank it out, and replant it. You got basil for the rest of your life. Green onions. Go to the store. You buy your. Don't even worry about buying seed or anything. Go to the store. Buy some green onions. Use them. Leave about a three-quarter inch that tip down where the roots are. Stick those in your oven flow beds. Whenever you need green onion, just cut the top off. It'll grow back. You have onions for the rest of your life for the couple trips to the grocery store. This is how to think with aquaponics high speed. I got to throw a shout out, my buddy David. I learned a lot of this from him. Anyway, with that, let's go ahead and take another call. Jack, it's Josh in the north Atlanta suburbs. Just got to say thanks for saving my life, man. I'm telling you, I had a, uh, a road rage incident <laughs> yesterday. Some guy was driving erratically through the parking lot, so I went around him to avoid him because I could tell he was, uh, there's something awry. Anyway, so I parked, going to the grocery, and the dude followed me. He was like up on me <laughs> for like five minutes. I, was, I mean, literally up on me. And I finally said, dude, what are you doing? And he said, what are you doing? I said, I'm trying to get some groceries, man. And he was like in my face. And I, I mean, he's a small guy too, you know, five, seven, maybe a buck 40. And I'm five, 10, 200. And <laughs> I got for about two seconds, I got rage. And then I just remember your topic of your road rage incident. And I said, you know, I don't know what's on the other side of this guy's equation. It might be going through divorce. I have no idea. So I just turned around and walked out. And man, it felt good. I'm 47 years old and a younger day would probably would have, uh, Probably would have been bad. So, uh, it was, it was great and I feel great, man. As the, uh, just walked away and, uh, you know, I'm praying for this guy because obviously there's something not right there and he was looking, he was looking for bad things to happen. And, uh, you know, I got four kids, man. I, I can't afford for bad things to happen to me. So anyway, it was funny. I had the Jack Spurco voice in me when I, uh, <laughs> when this guy was up on me saying, you don't know what's on the other side of this. And I just walked away and, uh, the guys would walk out the door. He goes, bye. And I, Yes, I'm, I'm listening to you say it was my voice in your head that kept you from punching an asshole in the face who probably could have used it, but it was probably the, it was, it was definitely the right decision. The, the only question in these situations where you walk away from people like this is how right was the decision? It always is the right decision, but you know, does the guy have a gun, like little guy challenging a big guy? Does he have a gun or a knife on him? You know, is he just nuts? Is he on dope? where he's going to be twice as strong as he looks. I mean, you just don't. There's so many things. You know, are you going to get intervened on with somebody that thinks you're the aggressor and, and some guy's going to come kick you in the back of the head and kill you? I mean, you just you stay out of conflict, okay? So when I say probably could have used it or des some asshole that desperately needs it, what I mean is he's the kind of person acting in such a way, if he gets his ass kicked, you don't feel bad about it. Let's talk about some other things that can go wrong here. Um, 
you get in a fight with them, you win no problem. But because of the situation and what happens, you end up killing them or seriously hurting them. And you seriously hurt them, you look at a lawsuit, you kill them, you look at possibly going to prison over it, even though he started it. Because you get down to the point, could you have avoided the conflict? So I believe we should be trained in combat so that if we can't avoid the conflict, we can handle it. But the better we get at it, the less we feel a need to prove ourselves. Now, what I found amusing, though, when you were saying it was my voice in your head, I think there's a lot of people that know me today that go, yeah, that's how Jack thinks. But I promise you, there are people that I grew up with. There are people that I served in the military with that if you told them today, The reason you walked away from punching the shit out of someone who sounded like they desperately needed it is because Jack Spierko's voice was in your head and was the voice of calm, logic, and reason in that situation. They would think you must mean some other Jack Spierko. Because that is not the person that I used to be. But it's, it, it is the person that I'm proud that I am today. And it's, it's how I try to teach other people, including my, my, my son and my grandchildren, to be. I am not a person who won't use violence. It's just I want to be the person that is always my last resort and never my first choice. Because there are way too many things that can go wrong. Way too many things. And I'll tell you, I've come along with I used to be the guy, I'd sit in a restaurant, and I'd always make sure that I could see out the window So that if somebody got in my vehicle or something, I could go do something about it. But I'll tell you a secret. Back then, I wanted it to happen. I was like, there's no way that I can be blamed for doing anything wrong here, you know. Or I might see, like, now I hope that I don't have to be the person that intervenes. I hope that there's nothing where I ever actually have to use violence or force or specifically deadly force. But if you do everything you can to avoid it, You'd be surprised how infrequently we need to fight. And what you do need to realize, I think there's an ego thing in men, especially men, women too, but especially men, that when you walk away from something like that, that person's going to feel like, you damn right, you better, you're lucky at it. And they might say that to themselves at first, but it's going to bother them a hell of a lot longer than it's going to bother you. I could hear the relief in your voice. I could hear you laughing about it. You've ruined his day at minimum. It'll probably be a week later. He'll still be thinking about it. He'll still be angry. And the reason is because what you did, whether you realize it or not right there, is you controlled the situation. You decided what result would happen. That, that's what happens in these situations when they're handled properly. You take control of the situation. And when you take control of a situation when somebody's being aggressive, what you've done is taken control away from them. They do not under, this is a, this is a, 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 a dynamic of conflict that I, I really learned about deeply as I studied Sistema with Val Razanov. But when you take control, what you've done is, it had to come from somewhere. By being the aggressor initially, he was in control of the situation. When you behave the way that you did, you've wrested control from him. But since there's no fight, since you appear to be backing down, he doesn't know you've taken control away from him. And then the, the, when the de-escalation is complete, later there's this deep feeling in people like this where it's, they don't feel like all bravo because they know you didn't run away. You know, they know that you weren't really afraid. They just know that you de-escalated the situation. And it's later that inside them they feel the loss of that control. 
and it, it, it takes energy right out of them. And I don't mean in some mystical way. I mean the, the energy that we use to do what we do in our lives. Um, it's, it's just the way human beings work. So, so good on you. But I'll tell you, there'd be some people laughing right now uh, to hear that it was my words of, of advice that prevented a conflict like that because there are people that would tell you some stories, man. Anyway, uh, let's take another one. Well, you'll notice I'm back, and this is an example of making a mistake and telling you about it instead of hiding it and pretending it didn't happen. Um, I have two files, and they're both named what they're supposed to be named, but they are both the same call, and they are the last call, which is the next one. So since I got this off SpeakPipe, I was a dummy today, and after I downloaded the calls, I deleted them out of my SpeakPipe area and unlike links them off your folders or your, your computer where you can go into your, your trash and dig it out um, once you delete it from SpeakPipe it's gone so I must have downloaded the same one Sorry. twice and uh, technical gremlins continue as the Amazon Alexa thinks I'm trying to talk to it But so I, I, I what I'm going to do is tell you the gist of the question because I thought it was a good one I don't want to make my faux pas not get this person uh, his answer so we have a person call in it does the uh, The, the, the college student podcast, successful college student, college student success podcast. And so he's been doing that for a while. I've, I've been on his show and, uh, he's thinking about doing, you know, another podcast, something maybe, maybe a little bit more monetized, uh, monetizable. Cause if you talk about a broke ass demographic, it's college students and his base. And he lives in a town that's a, in a suburb of New York City, but it's in New Jersey, I believe is what he said. So it's probably a fairly sizable town. And his question was about basically creating a local podcast uh, that would cover, you know, human interest stories and things like that about the local area. So it really wouldn't be something that someone down here in Texas would probably listen to. Uh, you know, maybe even some level of town gossip or lo maybe you talk about the local sports thoughts. I don't know anything like that. And, and I'll, I'll tell you what, I actually think it's a fantastic idea. And you want to know is what the benefits and maybe any of the downsides. The downside is limiting your market. I mean, I've been able to grow this show to 150,000 plus people because it's global. We have people that listen in Australia, New Zealand, United Kingdom, uh, and, uh, and, and Ireland, you know. And, and the reason, obviously, though, they're the biggest ones, they're, they're English speaking countries. But the truth is, we have listeners, we have listeners in Russia. We have listeners in, in parts of China, because apparently I'm banned in certain areas in China, but not in others. It's a weird thing. Maybe some people know how to get around in Japan. Uh, we have people listening in the Middle East. And, and so you have a sheer numbers, you know, volume, capacity. Even if you're just, you know, U.S. national, most of my listeners, the majority are American. They're the biggest individual segment. Uh, actually, a huge contingent right here in Texas, though. But with the type of size of town you, you have, then you probably have a real opportunity because it's probably something that, that doesn't exist. You know, there's probably not a good local radio show that does the kind of things with the flexibility you can as a podcaster. As always, I'm going to tell you, your key to success with a podcast is frequency. Frequency, 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 frequency. And something like you're talking about, best frequency, I don't know if you have it in you, but it would be daily. I believe if you look at the most successful podcasts out there, they're daily podcasts. They're Monday through Friday. Because I've said this before, but I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it a thousand more times before I'm dead. 
the most valuable thing that people have today is not their money. It's their time. And that's interesting considering what her last question of the show is going to be. But it is. And when I mean it's valuable, I mean that it's more difficult to get a person to say, I'm going to listen to this person 30 minutes or 60 minutes a day every day than it is to get them to give you $29.95. They give you the money once it's done. It's not if they, if they see value in what they're paying you for, fine. But getting someone to say, I'm going to, I'm going to rely on this person as a source of entertainment or education or whatever is difficult because there's so many other people and things vying for that. You know? So frequency. So minimum is going to be weekly. If you don't do this weekly, then you might as well just not do it. It's also going to be a lot more temporal than some of the podcasting that you've been doing because you know college student success is pretty much generic and timeless. Uh, some of the stuff you do will be generic and timeless, but a lot of it will be current events and things like that. So if you only do it once a week, then it's hard to be like the source of what's going on. They'll hear about it somewhere else. So I, I think that, you know, it might be better suited to a daily show or a Monday, Wednesday, Friday thing or something like that, but minimum weekly. If I was going to do this as a weekly, I would put it out on Saturday, believe it or not. If you look at AM radio as an example, all of the kind of niche little one-off radio shows are on Saturday and Sunday morning. Now, unfortunately, about 90% of them have ended up uh, now being, uh, what do you call it, um, financial liars, financial liar shows, financial advisor shows, and mortgage shows and stuff like that. Um, Howard, Howard Garrett's on uh, on gardening on uh, on Saturdays here. I like, as it's Sundays here, I like listening to him if I'm in the vehicle. He also has a podcast, of course. Uh, it's funny to me, though, because uh, Howard Garrett and Neil Sperry, who both do gardening, are on at the exact same time slot on competing stations. I, I, I find this asinine. Because the other, it, I think it is Sundays or Saturdays that they do the show. Because on Sundays, there's nothing but financial liars on. And, and it would be really smart for one of them because I think they're, you know, they're buying their radio time to, to, to move the, the, even if they move later in the day or something so that they would not have to split the audience that they have. Um, just a, an aside there. But okay, your other critical key is going to be marketing you're not really going to be able to rely that much on like search engine optimization in this situation. Now, the good news is that you will probably, whatever the name of your town is, let's say it's Sheboyganville. If you do the Sheboyganville podcast and somebody hears about it and searches for it, even if they are not smart enough to just type in Sheboyganville podcast, uh, they're going to find it. There's not going to be any competition for that at all. And the truth is, The best marketing to do online is local. It's the easiest and it's the most effective. When somebody searches for Fort Worth duck eggs, there's no doubt about what they're trying to figure out, and that means you have a highly targeted buyer. And if you go to Google right now and type in Fort Worth duck eggs or Dallas duck eggs, you'll see Nine Mile Farm at the top of the list. Why? Because I know what I'm doing and it's easy. Relatively speaking, it's easy. And I haven't even tried hard. If anybody ever knocks me out, I'll try harder. right? I mean, I do enough to be number one. And so that works with SEO for trying to find a tire shop or something like that. So 
it will work from that standpoint, but where it'll work good, as long as you get the word out that it's there, I think you'll find a pretty hungry audience if you do a good job with it. And I've heard your other show, and you're pretty good as a podcaster, so I think you will. But you're going to have to come up with some sort of local, it, it sounds weird because you're doing an online product, but some sort of on, local offline advertising to really build it up to get people talking about it. If you can get a thousand people listening, you've got something. And if you get a thousand people listening and your town is something like, you know, I'm thinking you probably live in a place with like a couple hundred thousand people in the town itself and kind of surrounding it that are target people. So if you get a thousand, you probably can get ten. If you get ten thousand local people listening to something, you're literally direct competition for local radio. In fact, you're better than that. Because where you are, there's not even going to be local radio that's that targeted to where you are. It's all New York City market. And if you can, then you should not have trouble getting deals with sponsorships and things like that. The local tire shops and what have you. So I, I think it's a fantastic idea. But it's going to have to be frequency. It's going to have to be very good marketing. And I'm a big, I'm big on the whole. I don't really care if you have a dot com. I would try to have a dot com for this because this is going to be offline. When you're driving traffic from offline advertising, dot com becomes more and more important. Or you got to find something that has a, a ring to it. So, like for instance, if you look at my farm site, it's nine mile dot farm. Well, when you tell somebody it's nine mile dot farm, oh, nine mile farm. Nine, oh, they they remember. They, they might look at Saba. There's a dot farm. Oh yeah, now they really remember it. You see, but I would try to go with dot com for this, even if it has to be long. You know, the the, the Sheboyganville City Podcast dot com or whatever, because it just it sticks in the mind. Because we live in the dot com world, not the dot net world. Your dot net, you should probably think of systems administrators or something like that. So I think it's a great idea. I think the only way you're going to know is to give it a shot, but. If you're going to do anything less than weekly, and I'd say this with just about any podcast, don't. If you want to do it to learn how to do it and to mess around with it, less than weekly, fine. But if you ever want a show to be something, then you need frequency. And I would say this. I know not everybody can sit down and do an hour-long show every week or two-hour long show or two-hour long show every day, right, like I do. I got it. It was, you know, this show was a 45-minute show because that's all my commute was until I got out of the car. And it's grown in, in, in time over the years. Now we use whatever time we need to get whatever we need to get done done. But if I was going to do a local podcast, I would figure out how to condense it down to 15 minutes and do an hour and 15 minutes of programming a week in five 15-minute episodes before I would do one one-hour and 15-minute show. And as it grows, you might find that it'll get easier to do you know an hour a day or 30 to 45 minutes a day. I think in some instances, like me making this show as long as it is, has hurt it a little bit because people only have so much time. I know a lot of you guys listen to me at 1.5 speed, and I can cut it in half. Um, but I think the sweet spot for podcasting is about a 30-minute show. It's, it's, it's about right. Depending on how much you want to do with it changes on whether or not you can do that, though. But go for 15 minutes five days a week before you do an hour one day a week. That's that's my big advice. And you gotta effectively market offline. You gotta do I don't know what. You gotta figure out what's available there. Uh, but you gotta get out in front of people and get them talking about it. Once you get them talking about it, one person tells another. 
you'll probably do pretty good with just vowel word of mouth. Uh, let's take our last one, and this one is on how we value our time. Hi, Jack. This is Ed from the Bitter Valley of Montana. I'd like to get your thoughts on valuing your time with regards to money-making and money-saving opportunities. Now, this could be anything from clipping coupons to taking a long drive to pick up building supplies to taking on physically demanding work for extra income. Now, when a business encounters this sort of problem, it seems like the answer could be pretty simple. If the business knows the value of its time and its money, does the option make sense financially? But we as individuals, we value free time, enjoyment, and comfort, and sometimes we fail to value these sort of things enough. I know the scope of this question is extremely broad and can't be boiled down to a simple formula, but I think it's pretty interesting. So I'd like to get your thoughts, Jack. Thanks. Well, there is different ways to look at it, and I think even as individuals, we do need to look at, you know, let's put aside the recreation value and things like that and just freedom and stuff like that, and let's just look at, like, monetary value as the first step in valuing our time. So when I look at something and I realize that I could do it myself, but I'm going to spend four hours doing it, and and I do, if I will break down by the hour how I do in my business work, I, I do pretty well by the hour. And if that time will legitimately be spent, let's say, producing a show or a video rather than, you know, doing that job and I can get that job done for less money than I would earn by going out and producing content, I'm going to produce content. That's a business decision, just like you're saying. I think that sometimes, like, you know, the people that want to be, like, the, the motivational speaker, wealth advisor type guys, they often bring this up, and they talk about the value of your time that way. And it, it economically, it doesn't matter unless that time is going to be used to produce money. So if you say, well, I make $25 an hour at work, so my time's worth $25 an hour, but it's Saturday afternoon, you ain't going to be at work anyway, that equation from a financial standpoint breaks down. I think the next dynamic we have to look at is the, the, the fundamental reality of where we are in life. So when I was 24 years old, I was starting to do okay. You know, I was starting to build, you know, I had a decent job and I was on the right path. And I, I you know, I, I, I was 26 when I met Dorothy to put it. So when I was 26, 28, let's say. So by now I'm making good money. I mean, I'm talking 28, so I'm making 100,000 a year. But I would still change my own brakes on my car because I had just gotten there to that kind of an income level. And we were trying to save money, invest money buy a nicer house, all that stuff. So it didn't matter that I was, you know, that, that I could have totally afforded to take the car in and get the brakes done. That, you know, 40 or 50 or 60 bucks I would have spent for somebody to do it versus just buy the parts, you know, that differential there. That was money that it, it, it mattered to me in my life still significantly. So I would do more things for myself at that point. So... How much is it worth to have your Saturday off to go hang out with your kids or something? Well, a lot. But do you have the financial capability? Is it financially responsible to not absorb the, the cost by, by ex you know, exerting your labor on it? 
You have to make that decision. And as we evolve and become more financial, and this is why I'm all about you pay your debt off, right? And if you're not in debt, you don't go into stupid debt, so you never have these huge debt payments. It's amazing how much money the, the, the average person would have in America if the average, ho uh, the average household uh, credit card debt won $30,000. That's a shitload of credit card debt. That's a lot of money every month just to service the debt so the balance doesn't go up, and most people still have the balance going up because they're still buying shit on it. So when we get financially responsible, then we're able to look at this question that you're asking, which is a very important question, from a little bit more of a reality standpoint. And, and I'm telling you right now, I value the shit out of my time. When it comes to business, I value my time. But when it comes to recreation, I value my time. So when I, when I want something done, if someone else can do a better job than me, and it takes money to get that done, and that money is a reasonable amount of money that we have in the budget for that month, I'll pay somebody to do it. There are also times, though, when I wish I could do it myself, and I know it's not going to get done. So the other side of this equation is, well, how long is it going to take to get the result, and how long am I willing to wait for that result? So let's say that I needed a deck built. There's absolutely no reason I can't build a deck, and I like carpentry. I mean, I would enjoy building a deck. But I don't have a lot of, especially in the winter when the days are short, I don't have a lot of time. It's 4 o'clock right now. I'm not done yet for the day. I had a bunch of other stuff. I made a cool video I'll tell you about in a bit today, and so I wanted to get that done. So, I mean, by the time I get done and hit publish, I maybe have an hour of light this time of year. This Saturday, got a family thing. This Sunday, got another family thing because it's Christmas time, right? Supposed to have more time, got less. So if I wanted a deck and we needed it for a reason, even if I could build it, I might have someone build it for me just so I can have it faster. So you have to look at that side of the time equation, too. It's not just the time you'll spend doing it, but the time you'll have to wait for it to be done. And then if, you've, if it's something you're not going to be very good at, What's the cost of fixing your screw-ups? You know, I found sometimes projects I did myself cost more than if I had paid somebody to do it. By the time I factored in all the things I didn't think, I, didn't, I thought I knew and didn't know, and went back and recorrected on, or maybe little hip, you know, hiccups happened here and there that caused me to have to do other things that would have happened to the person that, that bid the job to me, but that wouldn't have been my problem. It would have been theirs. You see, so I think we have to really take a massive, hard look um, at things. So kind of that's, that's the way I look at it. I, I think that we, we've gotten to a place where we're quick to call a guy to do something for us. And in some instances, that's good. In some instances, it's not so good. Because there is another side to this. So there's a last way that I would look at your time in this equation. You only have so much time on earth. And sometimes these things that we take on as projects that we're going to do, the value isn't in the money that we save. It's in what we learn by doing them. And if you want to learn a lot, you got to do a lot. I think that's a, that's a freaking jack quote right there, man. If you want to learn a lot, you got to do a lot. You can't learn a lot by just studying or just reading, or just listening to somebody else. If you really want to learn, I was thinking about this yesterday when I had Mike and Sue on about homeschooling. The reason homeschoolers learn so much is because they do so much. Kids in school don't do enough, 
They sit there and they're talked at, and then they do homework, which is preposterous. Imagine if you got as much work that you had to take home from your job as kids bring home from school today. It's, it's ridiculous. You got my kid for eight hours a day. You should be able to do his damn work there. That's how you learn, not by being talked at. But homeschoolers go out and do stuff. So when they're learning about animals, they go look at the animal. They go out and say, hey, this is what this animal So they do stuff. Or if they want to learn how something works, they build something. It's not just, you know, one, one shop class in 12 years. It's every day is like a shop class. So the other side of this time equation is if there's something that needs doing and it will teach you something and instead you do something you already know how to do, Well, that time's also eaten away from what you could have learned. So you have to find balance in it like all things. Those are my thoughts. Great question. I appreciate it. With that, let me let you know, I did put out a video today. I'll probably be putting a couple videos on the site that I've done that I haven't put on the blog. I don't always put them on the blog. Um, but I put it on Facebook and Twitter and stuff like that. And if you follow my YouTube channel, you should get a notice if you set up to get that. But it's about a 20-minute video of, of all the stuff that's going on here at the Spirico Homestead. My chicken's eating quail eggs on me, and uh, brand new uh, grow light that I got in a grow tent. I got to get that. So talk about getting stuff done. I got to get that set up. All types of stuff like that. So uh, we're going to uh, we're going to you know remind you about that and, and, and go take a look at that video. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, some really cool projects that will be coming up in the next couple of weeks going through Christmas break. And as I actually get them implemented, I'll have video outs on them as well. It shows the, uh, the grow bucket system that I put in the, the greenhouse and how I'm overwintering some of my pepper plants and, uh, uh, quite a bit of other stuff. It's, it starts in one garage, goes through the other garage, goes through the new build. Uh, there's a diagram of this, this big system I keep talking about. I think it'll make more sense than just hearing about it. And uh, I'll shot on the iPhone, but a little bit of extra editing, a little higher production value in this one. So uh, check it out. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, leave a comment on it or give it a like. I mean, that helps us on the YouTube side of things. Uh, next up, remember, you can always help support our show a completely painless way by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, you'll see all the reviews I've done of products on Amazon. You can see the deals of the day over at Amazon. And as long as you're shopping here... Uh, shopping through tspaz.com, you're helping us. Uh, today's uh, item of the day is one I, I realized I was reading it, and I'm like, you're an idiot. Why haven't you done this as an item of the day? I think what, what happened is that in somewhere in my head I thought I did. Uh, but when I looked it up, it turned out, you know, I'd mentioned this on a couple shows, but I have never done this as an item of the day, and it's something that I, I read a little bit out of almost every day. I don't know if it is every day, but it's almost every day. It's certainly several times a week. And I still haven't read the whole thing because I don't read it like you read a novel or something like that. I just read little bits and bobs of it. And it is Thomas Jefferson's Garden Book. And, I mean, it's it's a beast. It's over 700 pages because it's not just – what it's built around is Jefferson kept a journal of his gardening through a, a huge period of his life. And But this book, which was uh, edited and compiled by a guy named Edwin Morris Betts, who should probably get a freaking Pulitzer Prize for this, um, brings in all these different uh, letters that Jefferson wrote in the time periods that the journaling's going on. Uh, requests from someone for seeds or plants or requests that came to him for seeds or plants and lots of other really cool stuff. This is like a walk through American history 
and a, and a, you know, a different side of Jefferson than we learn about in school if we learn much about him all anymore, given he was so anarcho in his philosophy. Um, but let me give you a couple quotes from this book. This is like one of, like people talk about, you know, some, so many of Jefferson's quotes. This is one of my favorite and it, it, it's all about gardening. He says, I have often thought if heaven had given me my choice of my position and calling, it should have been on a rich spot of earth, well watered and near a good market for the productions of a garden. No occupation is as delightful to me as the culture of the earth, and no culture comparable to that of a garden. Such a variety of subjects, someone always coming to perfection, the failure of one thing repaired by the success of another, and instead of one harvest, a continued one throughout the year. Under a total want of demand except for our family table, I am still devoted to the garden, but though an old man, I am but a young gardener. I think that's awesome. Awesome. Here's, here's another quote that's in this book out of a letter that he wrote to a woman that was going to come see his grounds. He said, I know of nothing so charming as our own country. The learned say it's a new creation, and I believe them, not for their reasons, but because it is made on an improved plan. Europe is a first idea, a crude production, before the maker knew his trade, or had made up his mind as to what he wanted. And then this probably this is probably my favorite Thomas Jefferson quote of all time, and it's had nothing to do with politics, sort of. It's just a simple one-liner. The greatest service to any country is to add a useful plant to its culture. It's it's like a 700-page treasure hunt. But you find a piece, something akin to gold on every other page, sometimes several on a page. You know, a plant variety to research, which is made much easier by the editor's notes and use of Latin names for many of them. You also realize something about Jefferson, man. This dude liked peas. I'm talking every year the entry starts out with something like, quote, soda bed of peas first soaked to better germinate. <laughs> he was also fond of lettuce, and he had a feeling that if every family would simply sow a single thimble of, full of lettuce... Uh, seed every Monday from February to September, our nation would always be well fed. The book is fantastic. If you love gardening, you'll love it. If you love history, you'll love it. If you love the concept of liberty, you will love it. Uh, if you love all three, then like me, you won't just love this book. You'll consider it an heirloom in your library. My copy is full of underlines and side notes. Someday, when my grandkids read it, they won't see a perfectly preserved antique. I hope it will be tattered with my own thoughts and interests, frayed and yellowed a bit. And my hope will be that they too will see that indeed these ideas are timeless, that liberty and freedom can only exist when men and women care enough to feed both their stomachs and their souls through the tending of plants. I really, really, if you can't tell, like this book, and I think you will too. And if you have someone in your life who's a gardener or a history buff or both, or has a fondness for liberty early America, what have you, it's a fantastic gift. It's not inexpensive. It's 50 bucks, which this day and age for a book is pretty expensive, but I don't think you'll, you'll, you'll regret paying for it at all. I really don't. Um, again, I've had my copy for years, and I still have not read every word in it, and I kind of like it that way. And sometimes I, I do keep a mark in it, and I read forward through it, 
But on other days, I either go past the mark or before the mark to read something again and just randomly open a page, and I'll read that page. And because of how it's done, you can do that. Uh, it's not like a novel. It is uh, like Walks with Jefferson through his garden. The Gardener's Book by Thomas Jefferson, edited by Edwin Morris Betts. You can find it at T-SPAS along with my write-up and more quotes and more to learn about it. With that, let's talk about our song of the day today. This is a song that uh, I actually hadn't heard. It's by Dirks Bentley and some gal named Patty Griffin, uh, but it's called Beautiful World. And it, it makes the contrast of how on TV they tell us about all the bad, all the negative, all the things that aren't quite so good out there, but to them, it's a beautiful world. Man, that's a positive message and one that we need to hear. The, and and this, is, this is what I'm talking about when I talk about proactive apathy. People are like, You don't vote. You don't want, you gotta vote. No, no, I don't. I don't have to worry about any of that stuff because I'm not going to change it. Now, if you want to vote, go ahead. But I would spend a lot of time looking at the beautiful world and being part of it and a lot less time arguing about stuff that you're not going to change anyway. Circle of influence and circle of concern. The world is amazing. The opportunities that we have in the world are amazing. And so many people waste so much of their time focused in on that which is ugly when there's so much that's wonderful. And I think that the more we grow our own food, the more we practice individual liberty in our lives, the more we become self-sufficient, the more we teach others, the more we help others, the more the ugliness fades and it becomes the exception as to what we think about rather than the rule. And it's only then that we can really fulfill our destinies in life because we're all here to do something and it ain't to do something bad. It's to do something good, to do something positive. With that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help me figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. All the noise and the voices are screaming what they have to say. And the headlines and sound bites are giving me demons to hate. And the man on TV, he tells me it's ugly, but if you ask me, it's a beautiful world, it's a beautiful world. Ooh, there's tears and there's fears and there's losses and crosses to bear. Sometimes the best we can do is just to whisper a prayer And press on because There's so much to live for and so much to learn And this beautiful world Say what you will, but I still believe it's a It's a beautiful
So I hate that I sometimes miss what's right in front of my eyes. Oh. And I know at the end of my road I'll be wanting more time. Just another sunset. One more kiss from my baby, a smile from a friend in this beautiful world. It's a beautiful world. Yeah, it's a beautiful world. 